The Rock and Roll Coffee Show is brought to you by Writers and Rockers Coffee Company, keeping the music and memories alive with some damn good coffee. Be sure to pick up your Rock and Roll and Coffee Show coffee only at writersandrockerscoffee.com. And also brought to you by Retroactive, located at Broadway at the Beach in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, keeping you retro with everything from 70s, 80s, and 90s. Shopretroactive.com. Welcome to the Rock and Roll and Coffee Show. I am Joe Sibiriu. Thank you so much for joining me. My guest, Luke Edwards. Luke is the singer for the band Animal Bag. You might remember their songs, Everybody. And also, Hello Cosmo. Anyway, so Luke is the singer for Animal Bag. I discuss all things Animal Bag with Luke, as well as his Motorhead tribute band, Killed by Death. Coming up next. It's the Rock and Roll Coffee Show. Yeah, we do. Now, where are you right now? North Carolina, correct? Yeah, in Shelby, North Carolina. Okay, and now is that where you were born? Did you grow up there? I, I did, man. I was, you know, born here, lived here my whole life, graduated from high school here in 87, and, um, couple years after I graduated high school is when I ended up um, hooking up with Animal Bag and moved to Los Angeles. And, you know, that, it was the first time I'd ever left, lived away from home was moving all the way to Los Angeles when I was, um, I just turned 20. So, well, okay. Uh, so you were 20. Yeah. Okay. So w- when you were growing up, I mean, how did you find rock and roll? How'd you get into the music? It's weird. I kind of got in there in a weird way because my mom and dad, neither one, you know, were musical. They didn't really play any instruments. My dad had a guitar that he had bought, you know, back in the 60s just to see if he could play it and never really learned anything with it. Mm-hmm. And then my mom piddled with the saxophone, but she only did it so that she could be a majorette in the marching band. You had to play an instrument. And right. so she had, she had a saxophone, but she ne- I never heard her play one note on it, you know. So um, oh, no. I didn't come from I, now. You go back, you know, a couple of generations and stuff, and go into like extended family, like cousins and stuff like that. There was a lot of music in my family, but none in the household growing up. Mm-hmm. So what happened? I was lucky when I was in like fifth grade. They did a like one of those pilot programs, kind of a experimental class thing called IME. It was instrumental music exploration. And what they would do is like once a, I believe it was like once a month or maybe once a week. I think it was once a week. It had to be. Yeah. They would send us out to this little trailer behind the school. And um, for a third of the year, you learned the violin. For a third of the year, you learned the guitar. And for a third of the year, you learned the cello. And so you would just get like an in- introduction to these instruments, you know, and a basic knowledge of them. Well, I hated the violin. Everything was too close together and I couldn't, you know, it, it really like I was kill- 
killing stuff with the violin. I hated it. I got into the guitar. Believe it or not, I didn't like the guitar. I couldn't grasp chords and stuff. I didn't, you know, didn't really get it. Got to the cello and I loved it. I loved the cello. Now, so the next year when you um, went to sixth grade was when you could uh, sign up to be in the orchestra. So my sixth grade brain thought, well, if I like the cello, I'll probably really like the upright bass because it's one bigger, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I signed up to learn how to play bass, and yeah. so I got in the orchestra in sixth grade and started learning classical music, you know, on the bass, upright bass. And somewhere before Christmas that year, somebody clued me in and said, "Hey, man, you know the strings on that upright bass are the same as on an electric bass, right?" I was, I was like, "Really." And I was like, Mom, I want an electric bass for Christmas. And right. so that Christmas, I got this little short-scale area SG bass and a little Zap amplifier. And um, evidently, bass players were a hot commodity then. This would have been in the early 80s, man, you know. And um, there just weren't that many people playing bass. Everybody wanted to be a singer or a guitarist. Yeah, you know? a guitar player. Yeah, exactly. You know, there was no glory in playing bass, right. but I, I didn't care. And so all of a sudden, as soon as I got that electric bass, I mean, I hadn't even really learned anything, but I started getting like calls from like guys in high school and stuff going, heard you play the bass. And so all of a sudden I'm like, you know, this little sixth grader jamming with these guys in, you know, high school bands, you know, <laughs> learning how to play like ACDC and stuff like that, you know, and all of sure. a sudden we're playing like high school parties. And, you know, I'm like a little sixth grader, like a keg party or something while somebody's parents are out of town or something. And just like going, wow, so this is what it's like, you know. And um, and of course, you know, from then on, it was rock and roll, man. Yeah. You know, so you got into rock and roll with the bass guitar then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I started off as a bass player and singing backup vocals. You know, I'd sing backups and stuff like that and play bass. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I wish I would have went to your school because when, when I had music class, I got stuck with the recorder. <laughs> luckily i see you i could have joined you know you could go the orchestra route or you could go the band route and uh-huh. the band was all like the woodwinds woodwinds and brass and all the percussion and stuff like that so i yeah. chose to go the the classical route so it was all you know <laughs> violin viola cello bass you know stuff right, like right. That. So, yeah so how did you get into singing then you started with bass what where was that turn where you went into vocals well i mean I, I would sing a lot of backup vocals and then it got to where, you know, well, you know, it, as I progressed through some different bands on up into junior high and stuff, you know, it was like, you know, why don't you sing one? And so I would sing a song every now and then, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. And so um, I played, you know, I still, I played bass pretty much exclusively through, um, you know, most of my junior high and, you know, high school bands and stuff like that. I was still always a bass player. And um, so I guess it was probably my junior or senior year in high school. There was a guy that has a, had a music store here in town. Mm-hmm. And he had put together like a band of like young musicians, you know, that he was, you know, I'm sure it was really just, you know, to promote the music store probably, but, you know. He got a bunch of, uh, you know, like people that took lessons at the music store and stuff like that, sure. put together this little rock and roll band of like young kids. 
And so they had a singer, but they weren't really happy with the way things were going or the singer wasn't really into what they were doing or something. I don't really know what the deal was. So anyway, um, they all of a sudden they hit me up. I'm playing, you know, bass with another band at the time, you know, just kind of going, you know, around doing whatever. And um, they hit me up and were like, hey, would you be interested in auditioning to um, sing, you know, for this band? And I was like, I never really thought about being a singer. You know, it never really crossed my mind. Right. And I was like, I'll give it a go. You know, I mean, I, I was never, you know, a classically trained singer. I wasn't even, cor- I wasn't even in chorus you know, in high school or anything. So, you know, the, the singing thing was kind of a, um, a new thing for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I went and, um, auditioned. And I think that from having played in rock and roll bands, you know, at this point I'd been playing in rock and roll bands for five years. So I already had a lot of, you know, stage experience and stuff. I mean, we were, the bands I had been in, you know, even when I was like 15 years old and stuff, we were playing like brown bagging joints around here and stuff. Our parents would have to drop us off and we could play a gig, you know, to a bunch of, you know, dudes at a brown bagging bar. Were and, you playing cover songs? Yeah, yeah just playing cover songs okay. and stuff at the time, you know. Uh, we were doing a lot of, uh, in fact, we were like to be a bunch of young kids. Uh, we had picked up a lot from like people's older brothers and stuff. So we were playing like, you know, Thin Lizzy and Kiss and mm. a lot of this kind of stuff. And like these high school guys are coming to see these little kids, you know, playing, you know, that's like, man, I heard they're doing like, you know, Hollywood and, um, you know, jailbreak and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, so all these high school guys are showing up to see these little kids play cool songs and stuff, you know, so we were just doing the cover thing. And uh, playing, we were, um, we had become the um, darlings of Kate's skating rink. There was a skating rink that would set up a band down at one end, like on Saturday nights. And it would be, we would play to like crowds of screaming eight to 12 year old girls, you know, (laughs) at the skating rink. And so the guy at the skating rink loved us and he would book us all the time. And then he like took us to his skating rink in Gastonia, which was like a town over, you know, and so we thought we were big stuff, you know, because we're doing the the tour. It was a skating rink. Yeah. We were doing, we were playing the skating rinks and stuff, you know? So anyway, I'd been doing that. All of a sudden this band, the band was called the trust that asked me to sing for them. And they, you know, so I went and auditioned and it went good. And I don't think I really got the gig because I was the greatest singer in the world, but because I had an attitude and, you know, sure. and, and I didn't act like I had already played so much at that point that I wasn't scared to be on stage and, to, mm. you know, be a front man, you know, well, front man's of, different than a bass player though. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> I think the, the, the largest part of it is, well, at that point, the expectations weren't quite as high as like when sure. you get to the you know, next level, you know, they, and um, so anyway, I, I got the job playing with those guys. And so, I mean, once again, it was just a cover band, you know, mm-hmm. but we all of a sudden, you know, this guy that was back in his own music store. So we were in this band that had a lot of PA and had lights. And then he bought an old school bus and converted it for us. We had a bus and like stuff like that. Wow. So, you know, we thought we were like big stuff, you know, we're riding around, you know, we're doing like, you know, stuff locally and opening for some of the bigger, you know, local you know, bands, you know, older guys and stuff like that. 
And then we started doing some gigs out of town. Like we would go to Tennessee and play, you know, Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge. And, you know, go. we went down to Myrtle Beach and played some gigs down at Myrtle Beach and stuff like that, you know. So, you know, yeah. And and so, we, yeah, we were playing down there. We were back when Dixie Electric Company first decided to have live music. We were the first live music band to play at Dixie Electric Company, you know, they back in the day, you know, down there in Myrtle Beach because they were primarily a dance club. And um, so, you know, so we went down there and played um, and, you know, kind of started getting the itch, you know, to uh, be in more of a working band. You know, I, I sure. started, you know, to started thinking about it, that maybe this could be something, you know, more than just, uh, you know, a hobby or, you know, something like that. Maybe this could actually be something. But you were still doing covers at the time. Yeah, still doing okay. covers at the okay. time. And, and, and which actually is kind of what led me to meeting the guys in Animal Bag and taking it to that level was that I was just getting burned out on playing covers and sure. I was ready, you know, I was ready to write some music and the band I was in, you know, the trust, those guys, great musicians and everything, but nobody, me and maybe one other guy in the band had any interest in writing original music. The rest of them were just happy to play, you know, covers and go right. out and just be a really good cover band. And so I was kind of getting frustrated with that. And um, I remember I, I went to um, a club in Charlotte called uh, the Park Elevator at the time. And this, is, this has been in like probably 87, 88, something like that, you know. And I went to, uh, I went to see this band Dirty Looks. Yeah, great band. Yeah. And so I went to see Dirty Looks and I ran into this girl that I knew that was there at the show. And she's like, so how's it going? You still playing band and everything? I said, yeah. I said, it's going good. I was like, you know, we're getting some gigs. We're, you know, playing some out-of-town gigs and stuff like that. I said, but, you know, still, it's just all covers, you know, and I, I really, you know, would like to play some original stuff. She's like, oh, I got some friends that um, have a band here in Charlotte. She's like, they do almost exclusively original stuff. She said, they got a pretty good following around here. She said, but they're... Um, kind of parting ways with their current singer because he's not really into the direction they're going. And uh, she's like, I think the drummer's going to be here tonight. I'll introduce him to you. I was like, cool. You know, so she introduces me to Boo from Animal Bag that night, you know, and I already already heard of Animal Bag. They already had a pretty good following. following. Yeah, they already had a following with the singer that they had, you know. Um, Did you like them? Uh Uh-huh. Did you like them? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved what they were doing, you know, and they were like, you know, up here, you know, they they were they were, you know, actually packing out clubs, playing original music and stuff like that, you know. So it was like, you know, I didn't even know if I was even qualified to even think about joining that band, you know, because I I didn't know if I was on the same level with those guys because they were just, um, you know, unbelievable musicians, you know, you know. And so I meet Boo that night. And he says, you know, kind of tells me about the band and tells me that, you know, yeah, we're trying to go, you know, they, they were getting real into stuff like um, they were getting a little bit kind of, they had always been kind of a little bit more when they started out, I guess, kind of hair metal a little bit, sleaze rock, you know, kind of, you know, that kind of L.A. guns, you know, and type of stuff that, you know, like that, okay. and Guns and Roses and stuff, you know, that like that. And, um, 
but they had discovered bands like Jane's Addiction and Voivod. You know, they'd got like the, you know, the um, Jane's Addiction, that, that first one, the Triple X, you know, mm-hmm. tape recordings mm-hmm. and stuff. And they were getting into some, some stuff that was a little bit more left field. And the singer, you know, didn't want to go that way. He Doesn't wanted to play that, more, yeah. you know, stuff like docking and stuff. Right, you know? right. And so anyway, so they they were looking for somebody that was ready to kind of go in that direction with them. And I was like, man, I'm open for whatever. You know, I listened to yeah, all kinds of sing. Yeah. And, and I was I was into so many different kinds of music. You know, I mean, I loved all the hair metal stuff and everything that was happening then and everything. But I was also like a big fan of like, you know, Jethro Tull and Uriah Heath and all these bands that I had. I discovered all these bands. My dad bought a big stereo system from a guy he worked with. And when he brought it home, the stereo cabinet had some eight tracks down in the bottom of it. And nice. I was I was like little, you know, and I put on headphones right. and was just going through these eight tracks. And it was like Uriah Heat, Demons and Wizards and Jethro Tull, Heavy Horses and all this stuff. And I'm just like, it just like was, you know. That was it, yeah. I, I was probably like 10 years old when I started listening to that stuff. And it was just like, wow, you know. And so instantly I grabbed, gravitated to that kind of stuff, you know. So I, I had this other side of me that besides the hair metal and all that kind of stuff that was a little bit more into that kind of, prog rock you know classic rock type stuff and everything too yeah because yeah. animal bag wasn't a hair they didn't sound like your the regular no, hair bands. they they had we kind of made that in fact a lot of the riffs in some of the songs later on are recycled riffs from some of some of the stuff that was more hair metal when it started out mm-hmm. and then we were really bad to t- say you know just to completely abandon a song if we felt like it didn't sound like us anymore, then we would rip it apart and take the riffs and make new stuff out of it. You know, mm-hmm. so, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, you know, oh, the intro to that. Yeah, that used to be Sex Ninja, you know, and stuff like that. You know, so um, <laughs> yeah. anyway, so we, we would rip songs apart and recycle, you know. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so, so, with did, it, did, so, yeah. so then you, when you first joined them, it, that's when you started writing what Animal Bag became? Yeah, it was funny because, you know, when I joined them, you know, I had to kind of go audition for them because, you know, none of us knew each other or anything. Boo was like, you know, are you going to be at the David Lee Roth show? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I'll meet you in the tunnel, which the, the tunnel was what led to the floor at the old Charlotte Coliseum, you know. Okay. And all the, you know, the kind of rougher guys used to hang out in the tunnel and stuff. So Stay I had to go away meet from him. the tunnel. Yeah, I had to go meet him in the tunnel and get a cassette of some of their songs, you know, that they were doing. And he was like, you know, learn some of these. I was like, cool. And so I went home and I just learned every one of them, you know, there's like seven songs on tape. Mm-hmm. And so I went to audition with them. They said, well, which one do you know? I said, I know all of them. They said, you know, all of them. I said, yeah. And so, you know, and I didn't have any, no lyric sheets with me. I had committed to all the memory. You were ready. And so, it went great from the first time we started playing together. It was great, you know. And um, Boo, it was like a couple of days after they said, well, you know, they told me that night. They said, well, if you want it, you got it. You know, I said, yeah. I want nice. it. And um, so he calls me like two days later. And he says, hey, man, can you be ready to open for Crocus in like seven days? And I was like, yeah. And so my first gig with Animal Bag was opening for Crocus. Really? Charlotte, you know, yeah, that was the first time I played with them was opening wow. for Crocus. And so, of course, you know, 
at this point, I'm just blown away because it's like I've just got sucked into this world that I never thought I would be in. And, you know, these guys were doing all their original songs and all that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you know, we started as soon as I joined the band, the evolution into what Animal Bag would become started because everybody was on board. You know, there wasn't one guy that was trying to pull it another direction. It's right. like they all four of us were going, well, you know, I don't care how weird it gets, you know, or, you know, I don't get, you know, I mean, to us, it was like, there was something that made it sound like animal bag, regardless of what we did. I mean, we, we would, you know, I mean, we compared it a lot to, you know, how the, the Beatles, whether it was, I want to hold your hand or whether it was happiness is a warm gun. It was still the Beatles and it mm-hmm. sounded like the Beatles, you know, I mean, they could do all this different stuff, but there was some kind of thread that went through that that mm-hmm. always sound like the Beatles, you know, regardless yeah. of which, what it was. And so that's what we tried to have with Animal Bag. You know, I think it was the way we played and the way the, the chords and the time signatures and stuff like that that we chose to go into. And then doing a lot of three-part harmony stuff you know we were real into three-part harmony we had three guys that were excellent vocalists yeah. rich the guitarist just had no he had a way better voice than i did mm-hmm. you know and he could sing the really high stuff and all that you know and he was just an amazing guitarist man i, I mean playing with rich was kind of like i imagine it was like how ozzy felt when he first started jamming with randy rhodes you know it was yeah. like man, this guy's next level, you know, and everything. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so we, we started writing the stuff that was becoming more of, you know, the next generation of Animal Bang, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, it became a lot more progressive and a lot more, um, you know, time signature changes, key changes, uh, the three-part harmonies. We didn't. We never said that doesn't sound like us or we can't do that. You know, I mean, if it ended up being a 12 minute long song, so be it. It was 12 minute long song. Do you, you think, know? do you think maybe some of that kind of stuff may have held you back a little bit? Oh, I'm sure. I'm <laughs> absolutely positive. It yeah. did. And, yeah. you know, and I, there, you know, in I look back at it now and, and I think we kind of knew it at the time that, I mean, there was a lot of stuff we were doing that was not conducive to really establishing your career. You know, right. I mean, we were so in love with what we were doing and so unwilling to, you know, stray from that, that I'm sure it cost us. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, you know, I, I even think about, you know, like when we, you know, when we signed the record deal and everything. We even made sure that, I mean, there was no way being an unproven band signing your first record deal and everything that we were going to get everything we wanted. But we, you know, at least made sure that we had mutual blocking rights on everything. Basically, if the label wanted to do something and we didn't want to do it, we could just sit there and look at each other at a stalemate till somebody gave in, you know, and, you know, right. and, and other bands are getting like, you know, selling publishing and getting all these advances for equipment and all this stuff. And we're like, nope, you know, we're going to have to pay that back. So we're not going to take any of that. And we're going to keep all of our publishing because one day we're going to be glad we did. We're planning for like, you know, 20 years down the road. Like, well, that you know, seems smart though. Well, to a certain extent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> at, but at, at the same time, you know, it, it, 
like really the only thing we asked for <laughs> when we did the record we had a great attorney our our attorney was just the best man and he's now he's went on to become the attorney for like mtv and viacom and all that stuff you know but he was really good and you know rather than sitting there negotiating a bunch of stuff that could have actually turned into like you know money for us and stuff like that you know we all we wanted in the record deal was each member of the band wanted the entire rush catalog on mercury every album rush released on Mercury. because you were with mercury right yeah exactly <laughs> and so when we signed the record deal in our attorney's office when we went into the conference room to sign he had all the contracts laid out and there was a stack of rush oh, CDs in front of each so you got what you wanted yeah still got it. yeah <laughs> so, but you know i mean i think back at the things we did and the kind of the way we you know we uh, you know honestly I think we were like, you know what, if this happens, great. And if it happens, you know, it's going to happen like we want it to happen. And if it doesn't happen, it's already been a great ride. And we're having a great time doing it. And we've at least gotten to this level. You know, yeah, I mean, sure. you know, I mean, when I joined the band, they already kind of had a plan that they were going to move to either Los Angeles or New York. They didn't know which one at the time, you know, but we're getting mm -hmm. out of Charlotte. We're going to go pursue a record deal, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm like, cool. You know, and so, you know, we saved up money and everything to, to move. You know? So you so, went to L.A., right? Yeah, we went to L.A. So, so did you have interest in you guys when you went out to L.A. or did you just go out as a band? Just... <laughs> we went out there cold, man. We didn't know anybody. I mean, we did. There were a couple of guys from Charlotte that we knew that were living out there, you know, playing with some bands and stuff around there. And so, um, you know, I won't say we didn't know anybody, mm -hmm. but we didn't mm -hmm. know anybody that could help us out. We didn't really know anybody doing anything in the you know music business or anything. We just moved out there cold. You know, basically, um, you know, we had Boo and Otis and um, Boo's girlfriend at the time and all that. They moved out like a week or a week or two before the rest of us to go ahead and get an apartment. So that when the rest of us came out with all of our stuff, we could crash on the floor and at least have a place to stay while mm -hmm. the rest of us were looking for a place to live and all that stuff. So, mm -hmm. you know, there for a few weeks, we were all living in one apartment with all of our stuff and all that, you know. What year was that that you went out there? We moved out there. It was the end of 89. And, um, yeah, because I, I, I was 20. And... Um, or actually, it was the beginning of 89. Early I think your album came out in what, 92? 91. Well, it was recorded, I, I recorded in 91, came out in 92, I believe it was. Okay. I have a mm -hmm. hard time remembering all the days. Yeah, so now, that was kind of the time when Firehouse was coming out, too, and they were yeah. from North Carolina, were, I believe, yeah, right? They were, yeah, those guys used to be, um, you know, uh, uh, they had been through a bunch of different incarnations around, you know, Charlotte and everything mm -hmm. before came Firehouse. And we knew those guys, or we knew, you know, some of them. We weren't all, you know, close friends with them or anything. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they were a whole lot more in tune with what was happening at the yeah. time, whereas we were a little bit fringe, you know. Yeah, was, well, yeah, I mean, they were totally different than Animal Bay. Right, exactly. But they, but they, uh, you know, were, um, uh, you know, at least from around here and that stuff. And we didn't, we didn't see them at all in mm -hmm. Los Angeles. We never even ran into those guys. You know, we were hanging out with some other guys that were playing on the, you know, kind of more underground scene uh, mm -hmm. that were out 
Charlotte, you know, playing the clubs like, you know, Raji's and, you know, Molly Malone's and, you know, Club Lingerie and stuff. You know, the clubs that, you know, bands like the Chili Peppers and stuff came out of rather mm-hmm. than the ones that, you know, the more hair metal scene, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so when you got out to L.A., I mean, what kind of crowd did you gather around out there? What other bands were? Because, like I said, you weren't really in with the with that scene, so to say. No, we, uh, you know, it, it's funny, you know, when we first moved out there, you know, we, I think we did one pay to play gig. It was mm-hmm. at Gazzari's. It was like the mm-hmm. first gig we did when we moved out there. We didn't know what to do or anything. So we did one of the pay to play things. And after that, we said, we'll never do that again. And we didn't, we never did another pay to play. We found clubs that we could do it without doing the pay to play now. And we did get to play, you know, some of the stuff like the whiskey and Roxy and stuff like that. But, you know, it would be once, you know, that was more like once you had met some promoters that kind of like Jay could get you on a bill with some other bands and stuff like that. But we, um, you know, it started off, we, you know, we would just play kind of wherever we could play and not have to pay to play there. And so we were playing, you know, we got to. We got in really early, not long after we moved out there with the bunch at Club Lingerie, which was one of the clubs. It was on, you know, Sunset or whatever, but it was down, way down at the other end, away from all the other stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And Club Lingerie was a great club, but it was known for, you know, a little bit more different bands. It wasn't quite as much of a hair metal scene down there. Mm-hmm. And so we got to be friends with those guys, and they were all really cool to us, you know, and everything. And so we would play there a lot. But I, uh, you know, and and I think it was there. You know, we we did some. You know, we got to open for some really cool bands. Like I know we did uh, some opening slots with um, Lock Up, which ended up becoming uh, Rage Against the Machine. It was mm-hmm. like Tom Morello and those guys in one of their early incarnations. They ended up uh, getting assigned to Geffen and did one album um, called I think it was called Something Wicked This Way Comes on Geffen, you know. Mm. And um so you know we did some shows with um lock up and um then you know I mean some of those you know kind of weird bands like you know the electric love hogs and sure, <laughs> love circus and fun house and you know yeah. some of those kind of bands. You know the early 90s was an interesting time to be in Los Angeles because it was kind of one of those in-between times. The Sunset Strip hair thing was going out and grunge hadn't happened yet. And there yeah. was this kind of in-between where nobody really knew what was going to be the next big right. thing. And just all this weird stuff just flying around out there. And people are trying different stuff. But it was an interesting time to be there because there were all these really different bands. You know, there wasn't really a you know, this is what everybody wants to be right now. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. there was still some of that stuff, you know, the bands that were doing the Sunset Strip that were still kind of mining that, you know, ground, like, you know, Pretty Boy Floyd and stuff like that, that were still, you know, doing that thing. Right. But there was there was this whole kind of weird scene going on with, like, you know, uh, um, you know, bands that never really did anything but there were some really interesting bands you know that were well, i think on. there was a there was a at that time when you guys came out there was a group of bands um like in your situation like animal bag that was a really good band but just really wasn't a spot for them at that time exactly it was you, you know, guys I, um t-ride i don't know if you oh, remember yeah, that band. I, I saw t-ride at foundations forum man it was t-ride uh i mean there's a quite a few saigon kick even one they were kind of saigon a kick, great band but right in the middle there 
yeah, you know, uh, the beautiful, uh, there's a whole bunch of the bands, man, mm-hmm. that, you know, just kind of fell between the cracks, you know, and then, and then I think that, you know, without there being a big, this is the next thing scene, the labels weren't dumping money into bands like they would, would you know, like when, you know, other, you know, like when all oh, these guys are going to be the next so-and-so, you know, you know, they, cause you know how it was, you know, one band would become huge and then every label had to kind of have a band like that. I get that band. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? And so, um, you know, uh, uh, there wasn't a lot of that then. And so, I think there were ban- there, there were labels that were taking chances on some bands to see if it was going to hit, but they were kind of reluctant to dump all that money into it to where you saw them in every magazine or saw them on TV or saw them on the big tours and stuff like that. You know, they just weren't, uh, you know, weren't investing in them like that. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, that that was something that kind of hurt a lot of bands during that era was that we were during that experimental era. And there wasn't really, uh, there wasn't a scene really that every one of those bands fit into. Everybody was kind of doing their own thing, you know, right. which, so we, which I loved it. I wish music was always like that. Yeah, you know, to me, it was more like the 60s, you know, when right. you know, there were a lot of bands experimenting and doing their own thing. And it was a really interesting scene. And, um, but it, it wasn't what, you know, it wasn't what was status quo in Los Angeles at the time. Mm-hmm. So when you guys got your deal, I mean, what was the plan? Was there a big plan for you guys? Like you're going to go out on tour for this long or we're going to get you with this band or how'd that go? It's because, funny because, because to be honest with you, I, I don't, how did I find out about animal? But, you know, I think at the time I lived in Tampa, Florida back then. Yeah. And 98 good, rock, I think was playing your yeah. guys song. And then you guys played like one of the livestock. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. they used to bring, I think they brought T-Ride down too. I think they brought a yeah, bunch they, of those we, kind of bands. They were always, man, we, we could go to Tampa and it's like we were rock stars in Tampa. And mm-hmm. then we'd go to some other town and there was, you know, more people there for the opening act than there were for us. You know, I mean, yeah. it was just, you know, but, it depended on where you were getting the radio airplay and Tampa was supportive of us. You know, but Tampa's always been, you know, kind of, you know, been kind of behind a, the, a little bit heavier music scene and stuff mm-hmm. like that they didn't shy away from the more metal bands and stuff yeah like that. but that's where i heard you guys but i don't remember hearing like i used to go to a lot of shows of course back mm-hmm. in the day but i don't remember hearing you guys on like a big tour like with we did. Up or biggest, right the biggest tour we did was we um did a tour with um ugly kid joe and collision and um we were the middle band collision would open the show each night and animal bag and then I could joke. And really, I don't know that there ever was really a concrete plan for the band. It's really weird how our whole thing went down, man, because we, before we signed with Mercury, we had some interest from Warner brothers and Warner Brothers had gotten to the point that they were acting like they were really serious about us. I mean, to the point that we went down and did a acoustic showcase for a bunch of the A&R people in Ted mm-hmm. Templeman's office. And, um, you know, they um, rented us a rehearsal studio, like a lockout to rehearse, to get a show together, to play in front of all their A&R staff and all wow. this stuff. And they rent that we we shared a practice room with the Chili Peppers. It was crazy, man. You know, they rented us this nice rehearsal studio. And then they um, 
paid for a big showcase for us at this place called the Alley, and it was this it was this um, kind of showcase uh, facility. It's where um, a lot of those LA bands like um, the Eagles and Linda Ronstadt, Little Feet, they used to all hang out there. It was like their okay. you know commune type rehearsal studio, and then later on it became you know, a showcase facility and almost like a museum. Like there was Lowell George's overalls hanging up over here in like a lighted box and, you know, all this memorabilia in there. Mm -hmm. And so they paid for us to do a showcase there. And we played for the entire A&R staff, Warner Brothers. Well, the whole time all this is going on, they had us exclusive. We couldn't talk to any other labels and all this stuff because they were dumping some money into us. And so, I mean, this went on for a couple of months and we're thinking, man, we're about to sign Warner Brothers, you know, we thought it was going to happen. And so we went and did this showcase for them at the alley. And after that, they just went, oh, yeah, we passed. <laughs> was it, the no, show was no, that good? No explanation. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, we thought we killed it, you know. Yeah. And everybody enjoyed it, you know, or seemed to enjoy it, you know, and um, they, no explanation or anything, just like we passed. And so we were, uh, you know, we were really upset, man. You know, I mean, we were sure. a- angry, you know. Yeah. And, and so we had a show right after this happened at Club Lingerie. And we were so, like, just, I had had the wind just completely knocked out of our sails. And we were just like, you know what? Screw this, man. Screw this whole scene. Screw Los Angeles. You know, just and and we went and did that show at Club Lingerie that night. And it was angry and aggressive and dark and just, yeah, you know. Well, unbeknownst to us, <laughs> this guy, Bobby Carlton, is an AR guy for Mercury. He ended up, he's the AR guy that had just signed Ugly Kid Joe not long ago. Mm-hmm. We didn't even know he was into us. We knew his brother was like one of the doormen at Club Lingerie. We knew his brother better than him, you know. Yeah. He had brought Bob Scoro, who was the president of, you know, Mercury Records, to the show that night to see us. We didn't know this. Right. And so we got up there and just went, you know, didn't care. And we're just, you know. That's what you needed. That's what we needed. Exactly. And so Bobby said that he was standing there with Bob Scoro in the crowd. And that Scoro's just standing there watching us. And then about halfway through the show, he went, get them if you want them. And just told Bobby, you know. And so after that, our attorney got this call from Mercury that they were interested, you know, in talking to us about signing. And so um, Bobby had some clout, the A&R guy, Bobby Carlton. And Bobby went on later on to be... um, Oh, he was Tommy Lee's personal manager and all this other stuff after he kind of got out of A&R and everything. Mm-hmm. But Bobby was our A&R guy. Bobby was the guy that, you know, pulled us into Mercury. And Bobby had some clout because he had just signed Ugly Kid Joe and Ugly Kid Joe had done well. Sure. You know? yeah. And they had done well without a bunch of money on them, you know, because that first album was recorded on shoestring budget mm-hmm. and still did really, you know, I hate everything about you did great, you know. So right. he, he was like, you know, everybody was taking Bobby really seriously at Mercury. And when they said, when he said, this is my next band right here, we were his second signing, you know. And so they were like, oh, Bobby Carlton's going to sign Animal Bag, you know, and all this stuff. So everybody's like, who's Animal Bag, you know, and all this stuff, you know. So, but there was this interest in us, you know. And um, 
they kind of had, I think we kind of developed a little bit of a plan that they knew we didn't want to be, you know, kind of hair metal, you know, mm. typical metal band, that we wanted to be a little bit more alternative, you know. Mm. So they had this idea, you know, Mercury had had um, Mother Love Bone. And, you know, when Andy Wood died and Mother Love Bone morphed into Pearl Jam, you know, so... Right. Um, so when Mother Love Bomb was on Mercury, they had their own little label called Star Dog Records, mm-hmm. you know, that was just a part of Mercury, a little bitty part of Mercury Records, you know. Well, they, they had this idea. Bob Scoro, the president of Mercury at the time, was really into us. And he was, he was a good guy. He was really behind us. And I think he understood us, you know. And so he's like, well, why don't we see about releasing this album on Stardog instead of making it a Mercury release, you know, because I think that will give them a little bit more street cred and put them kind of in on the radar of the right crowd. This is your first record. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If they see that it's coming out on Stardog, you know, well with Stardog, before you could release anything on Stardog, you had to get the blessing of the remaining members of Mother Love Bone. So Makes the Pearl sense. Jam guys had to listen to it and go, yeah, it can come out on Stardog. So they did. And we were thrilled that they said, yeah, that could come out on Stardog. You know, you guys so, weren't uh, far away from Mother Love Bone, really. No, we were we were, yeah. we were huge Mother Love Bone fans, mm-hmm. man. I mean, just huge but Mother Love Bone. Very similar sound sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And so um, so um, they released that first album on Stardog. And um, they were like, you know, okay, well, uh, you know, we need um, – we need to get you guys on the road. Like, you know, we're going to try to build this thing grassroots. You know, we want, we want to get you, they, they said, we want to get you on the road like now. Mm. And so they put us on the road before the album even came out. We didn't mm-hmm. even have an album out. We, it, we went on the road like two weeks before the album came out. Sure. And honestly, man, we were playing anywhere that would have us for like a hundred bucks. You know, I mean, we were playing for nothing. You were on your way. own. Yeah, yeah, they were giving us tour support, you know, to foot the bill. You no, know, but you were out, you were out by yourselves, right? We were just yeah, on okay. our own touring, you know, opening. Uh, and some markets we would go in and open for whoever was the hot local band and stuff. I mean, we, it was just like get these guys out, get them out and play, you sure. know. And so we were just out, like I said, man, we were road dogging it hard. And, uh, you know, we had, we were like, oh no, we're not going to rent a bus because we'll have to pay that back. So we went and bought like a little class C RV and we're out driving ourselves around in this little bitty RV with a van following behind us with all the equipment in it, two roadies, you know? And so, you know, we're, we're like complete, like almost like punk rock road dogging it out there, you know? And because we didn't want to spend any money, you know, because we understood that a record label is a bank, you know, we were going to yeah, end up having to back. pay back. So we're trying not to, you know, trying to be frugal. So, um, but man, we were, I mean, we went on the road and it was like, I don't know how that tour got booked, but it was almost like <laughs> throwing darts at a dartboard because honestly, we'd play in a town. Then we'd do like a six hour overnight drive to play another gig. And then we'd go right back to the town we'd played the night before to go to, you know, it was just oh, insane no. touring, you know. Ugh. And so we did that for a while. And then finally the album came out and, you know, the, the, the um, label finally had something to work at radio and stuff like that, you know, and try to um, 
you know, get you to where at least in some markets, people might know who you were when you got mm. to town, you know? Yeah. And so, um, so anyway, we, um, you know, we, once the album came out, um, that was kind of when the idea came, we should put them out on tour with Ugly Kid Joe, because those are Bobby's bands. And Ugly Kid Joe had just released their second album, the one with Cats in the Cradle and all mm-hmm. that stuff on it, you know. And so they were playing, you know, bigger venues, like, you know, bigger, you know, uh, you know, 2,000 seaters, 5,000 seaters, stuff like that, you know. And so that was when we got on the tour with Collision and Ugly Kid Judge. Seems like it'd be a good match. It was. And we did that tour for, oh, we were on the road with those guys for probably like eight or nine months doing that really? tour. Really? That long? And we were out there for a long time. And man, I mean, without a break, we were playing like five or six nights a week without a break. We went back and forth across the United States three times. We went into Canada. We went down into Mexico. We, I mean, we were just and still in our little RV. Collision had a bus. Ugly Kid Joe had a bus. Animal bags in an RV driving themselves, you know, and stuff. <laughs> like that. So, yeah, so we're just, you know, but um, it was great fun, man. We had a great time. And it was cool because being an opening act, we only had to play for 45 minutes each night. Yeah. You just pick your best stuff, and you can go out there. You didn't even have to pace yourself. You just went out there and just went. Did you, you know, guys keep the attitude with you that got you your oh, deal? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. We, oh, yeah, we. I mean, it was like, yeah, it was, it, it was, it was somewhere between. I said we, it, we became with the attitude and and the music and everything. Yeah, it was somewhere between. Like if you cross Rush with Pantera, mm-hmm. you know, something like that, because it was like, you know, this real kind of in your face. And then, I, you know, and then I was getting into um, I had always been really into um, punk more so than, you know, the other guys in the band were really more into like, you know, uh, they prog rock and all, you know, a lot of that alternative type mm-hmm. stuff, you know. Uh, Jane's Addiction, stuff like that. But I was more like, you know, I was the one that was like into Black Flag and stuff like that, you know. And so um, I was trying to do a lot of the vocal treatments like the, you know, everybody calls it the Cookie Monster stuff or whatever. Before that was really pop, you know, you know, now the, you know, the real guttural stuff is real popular. But I was trying to do that stuff, kind of my version of it before then. So it's like the songs would go back and forth between me singing Clean Voice and then, you know, whoa, you know some of that stuff too you know and so um it was real easy to get the energy and get in everybody's face and you know Mm -hmm. we would invite them to like stage dive and stuff you know and just got whatever we could to get the crowd riled up you know because like i said we only play 45 minutes so you could just go out there and just go balls out and just you know Sure. You didn't have to worry about making it through an hour and a half show. You just went out there and gave them everything and then went off and went, whoo, you know. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. so, so you go, yeah. so you're on the road for eight or nine months. You come back, you get off the road. Did you go right into the studio for the next album? Or? It's funny, man, because, and um, the next out, the, the, the next album ended up being Offering which Offering had kind of already been recorded because Offering was not supposed to be our next album. Mm-hmm. 
what offering was is Bob Scora, the president of Mercury that I was talking about that I thought he, you know, mm-hmm. was understood what we were doing and everything. We had played a pool party for a bunch of, you know, Mercury people and everything. And we did an acoustic set and we just played acoustic stuff. And, you know, Boo played hand percussion and stuff like that. And uh, Bob was at that show and he was just blown away, you know, by the acoustic side of the band. And he was like, man, with the harmonies and everything, he's like, we got to do something with this. He's like, we, this, this needs to be recorded. And he said, okay, he said, I got this idea. He said, I, what I want to do, he said, I want to give the band like $5,000. And I want to tell them to go find whoever they want to record it. I want them to do their own artwork, everything. I want the whole budget for this whole project to be 5000 bucks. And, you know, take like a week and go see what you can come up with and do some acoustic stuff. You know, he said, what I want to do, I want to take it, shrink wrap it with the first album as like an incentive and do it, you know, give it away as like, you know, an incentive to get people to buy that first album, to try to kick sales in on it and everything. So it was going to be a marketing tool is what it was going to be, you know, going to give it away. So we went and found this guy. And he had like some eight track reel to reel equipment and stuff. And we recorded in his apartment in Hollywood. And we had to record during the day because we had to record when his neighbors were gone to work so that we wouldn't bug them and they wouldn't, you wouldn't record their noise through the walls and stuff like that, you know. But if you listen to Offering at the end of one of the songs, you can hear like a crash. That was when the guy's cat jumped up on to the (laughs) counter and knock some dishes into the sink and stuff like that. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. we, we just left all that stuff in there. Sure. We just basically went in this guy's, we did vocals in his bedroom. You know, I just stand in his bedroom with a microphone and do vocals. And we recorded in his living room. And mm-hmm. um, we recorded this whole thing. Um, I did the artwork, you know, just drew it, you know, and everything with colored pencils. And um, we did the whole thing for 5,000 bucks. All the recording all the mastering, all the artwork, everything for five grand. Did it and come out by itself or was it only with the first record? It, what happened? We got everything together. We took it. We turned it in. They took it to Bob Scoro. He put it on and couldn't believe we had done this album for five grand. And he said, this is too good to give away. This is the next release. And so no. it, ended, it ended up being our next release. He's like, we're not giving this away. We're going to put this out. You should have blocked uh, them. Huh? You should have blocked them. Well, at the time, <laughs> we were just we were so happy with the way it came out. And we were thinking, well, this will buy us some time while we're working on the next real album. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, to us, it was, you know, buy you a few months because, you know, they had us on the road so much at the time, you know, because we were, you know, this was, I, I think... I, I get everything confused, man, because it's been so sure. long and there was so much going on. But I swear, I think we had pretty much wrapped up all that recording and everything before the Ugly Kid Joe tour. Okay. So at the time, we were still doing the crazy tour and just all over the place, and, you know, one-offs and stuff like that. And so we were just thinking that, you know, okay, well, if they just release this and promote it for, you know, six or eight months, that'll give us time to you know, stay on the road, do a little touring and write because we hadn't had a whole lot of time to write because we've been on the road so much. So we're like, that'll give us time to think more about writing 
and try some song ideas out live and stuff like that and really work on the next album, you know. Mm-hmm. So we we didn't really think of it being as something detrimental, you know, coming out as that next album. We were just kind of flattered that he sure. thought it was so good that it was going to, you know, they wanted to put it out as our next album. Yeah. So they put it out, but they didn't really promote it as the next album. You know, they didn't, you know, because they were still promoting the first album. So mm-hmm. it was just kind of in this void. And, you know, so, you know, of course, that, you know, it didn't do much as far as sales. And there was never really a single work to radio or anything mm-hmm. because it was of the of what it was supposed to be and what it actually became, you know. Right. And so, um, so offering it, I love that album. I actually like it better than our first album. The first album was recorded on a mobile truck. And we recorded the whole app that that first album was done in I think we did the whole album in like seven or nine days or something or everything, you know, and uh, it was recorded on the mobile truck that recorded exit stage left for Rush and Dylan and the dead and all this stuff, you know, La Mobile, uh, Guy Charbonneau did that. And, um, and, and, um, but, um, I really like. I always felt like it was rushed that first one. I felt like we should have, if we'd spent a little bit more time on it, you know, and everything. But we didn't have much of a budget, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, so um, really just it came out pretty good. It was pretty yeah, good we started, <laughs> you know, and, and I think that you know a lot of it was it was our first time really in the studio like that, and we didn't know a whole lot, you know. We didn't know what to ask for, and we didn't know what to, you know, push the issue on yeah. and stuff like that. You know, we were trying. Uh, you know, we were trying to be an easy band to get along with and stuff like that. So, you know, I mean, you know, that was just kind of, you know, that that first album, you know, I, I, it, great songs. And I like the production better now that I had gotten away from it for a little mm-hmm. while. And then I go back and listen to it and, it's go, and you go, that's not as bad as I thought it was, you know. Yeah. You know but still, I think it could have had more oomph, you know. But yeah. I think a lot of it was just a difference in what we liked, you know. Like, you know, Gee that produced it. You know, he thought, you know, he loved like journey production, real clean and sparkly and stuff like that, you know. Mm. And he thought that Van Halen got so much better, you know, when Sammy Hagar joined and everything, because it was cleaner and more produced and, you know, not as raw as, you know, he liked the later Aerosmith stuff, not the early stuff. Whereas we're like, you know, Aerosmith rocks, you know, and stuff like that production we liked, you know, where, you know. And so I, I think a lot of it was just a difference in what we like this production. You know? Well, then so. on the, I, I, let's call it your third album, that image damage, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. That never yeah. got released, right? No, it did that not. was, I mean, I heard it actually it's on YouTube. I found it on it, YouTube. It is. It's on um, YouTube. And I think it's by far the best thing we ever did. There's some heavy I, stuff on there. Oh man. And I still think it holds up today. You know, that was supposed to come out in 95 mm. and you know, I listen to those songs now. And I was like, man, a lot of this, you know, this stuff could come out now and still not sound out of place. You know, do you and still own those songs? Do you own the? We own all the songs. We don't. Uh, I, I don't guess. I, you know, I don't know what the legality of all that stuff is as far as you know, where you know the act, you know, as to who owns the actual recording at this point because it's been so long. Mm-hmm. But um, that album, when when we went to record it, they sent us to Seattle. And we, they actually got us an apartment in Kirkland and we lived in Seattle for four months recording that thing. 
We did all the basic tracks at Bad Animals, which is Hart's studio up there. Mm-hmm. And then we did all the overdubs out in Woodenville at a studio called Bear Creek. There's actually a really cool documentary on Bear Creek Studios. But the producer was Terry Date. Right. And he Terry, worked with Pantera. Yeah. Did uh, all the early Pantera. Did Bad Motor Zombie, Band. I think. Yeah. Mind I think Funk. so. Remember them? Did, you remember uh, Bad, Motor, Bad Motor Finger for Soundgarden. Mm-hmm. Did the uh, first Deftones album. You know, I mean, it, you know, Terry's just an unbelievable producer, you know. And Terry understood what we were doing, you know. Yeah. And Terry, um, but if you wanted to work with Terry, you had to go to Seattle because Terry lived in Seattle and Terry didn't travel. You know, Terry was already had enough clout that if you want to work with me, you come to me. We work in the studios. I Seattle was hot at that time, too. Wasn't yeah. It? Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Big time. And so um, so we went up there and record and we spent all this time recording with Terry. And it was a fabulous experience, man. You know, I mean, just having the t- that much time, like we'd get up in the morning and go to the studio. Spend all day there recording, you know, and then, yeah, I mean, it's got to where, you know, we felt like Seattle locals because, you know, we knew people at the grocery store and everything else because we stayed there, you know, for so long and everything. But it was a great experience. And I, and I, we were really, really pleased with the way everything came out on that. Yeah, what I heard so far sounded great. I'm going to listen oh, to it more. I didn't get to listen to everything on it. Oh, yeah, I, I, I. There's there's not a song on there that I don't like listening to. I mean, I think Image Damage, had it been released, had they known what to do with it, mm-hmm. you know, but what had happened in the time between when they decided that they were going to send us to Seattle and that Terry was going to do the album and everything, they cleaned house at the record label. You know, those record labels, you know, every now and then they'll just fire everybody there and bring in a whole new staff. And really all everybody does is jump from label to label. Mm -hmm. You know, you can talk to anybody. It's like, you know, well, I used to be at Interscope, but now I'm here, you know, and all this stuff, you know. And I guess it's, you know, supposed to keep the ears fresh and keep people from getting complacent in their jobs or whatever. But anyway, they fired everybody that was working with us except for our A&R guy. Mm-hmm. All the people that were working us at radio, all the people that were doing, you know, special projects, all the people, uh, Bob Scoro, president of the label that understood us and got us and was so behind us, he was out of there. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, our entire team was gone. And it was us and Bobby, you know, our A&R guy. And so this guy, Ed Eckstein, got moved to president of the label. Well, Ed Eckstein was the guy that signed like Vanessa Williams and Tony, Tony, Tony. And a lot of those kind of totally bands. different style, completely. Mm. It was the dark ages for rock and roll at Mercury. Because mm. you think you think about in the mid nineties, you know, Kiss went away, the Scorpions went away, Bon Jovi went away, all the rock bands that were on Mercury just kind of went away. Yeah. You know, so Mercury's whole focus became basically anything but rock and roll. Mm. And so, unfortunately, here we are. We're a band that really needed that push on this album. And now we're left with all these new guys coming in, bringing their projects that they're in love with. And this is just, you know, somebody else's leftover project. You know, who are these guys? I don't know them, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we just kind of got back burnered on everything. And it was like the worst possible thing that could have happened to us at the worst possible time it could have happened. You couldn't do anything, right? 
Because you were technically I, I mean, still with the label. Yeah, yeah, we're signed to the label. We're obligated to turn in, you know, another album. We're, you know, I mean, we're just basically at the mercy of the label at this point, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we go, we crank out what we think is just a phenomenal album. We turn it in. They get it. They listen to it. They came back to us and they said, all right, here's what we want to do. We want you guys to go back in the studio and we want you to pick a song that's been a hit and do your version of it. And we're Cover like, oh, man, they don't get it. You know, we're like, they don't get it. They don't understand what we just turned in. They don't know what to do with it, you know? And so we knew then that it was bad. You know, we are like, this is bad, you know, because we just turned in this album that we think should be all the ammunition you need to get us to the next level. And you're going, go back into the studio and record a song that's already been a hit, you know? And, and we're like, man, this is bad, you know? Right. So they put us back in the studio. We went and cranked out. I mean, we did a really cool version of The Doors Waiting for the Sun, you know, but um, it never got released or anything. I think it might be on YouTube somewhere right now. Somewhere oh, I have to look that up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but anyway, we, you know. So did so you we, ask to to be out, to get out of your deal or did they finally say? Well, here's what happened with that. You know, we're sitting here waiting for the news on, you know, when it's going to be released, you know, release date, you know, what's coming up. You know, they did, they, had, they pressed some advanced copies of it. There are actually some advances out there and stuff that a few of them went to radio and stuff like that. But we were like, okay, well, you know, what's the release date? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really have one yet, you know. Okay. And so we're just sitting around. And so anyway, what happens? contractually when you deliver the masters the finished recording to label they have so long contractually to release that or they get themselves into breach contract for sitting on it too long you know basically that's what happened they sat there and they sat on it and they sat on it and they sat on it and you know don't have a release date yet don't have a release date yet you know and nothing's happening we're just sitting here you know going you know or are we going back on the road what are we doing you know are we going to get another tour you know when's this going to get released you know and so they asked our attorney for an extension you know to get everything together you know and get a plan together and everything release date and everything we granted them an extension sit here sit around sit around sit around nothing happens why'd you grant them an extension we didn't know what to do at that point, you know. I mean, we, we're thinking, you know, you know, uh, you know, if they could, if they could actually do what they said they wanted the extension for was to get a marketing plan together and all that kind of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, get you know, shop for some tours and stuff like that, you know, that you know, maybe you know, since they're the ones that own the masters basically at this point because you know, they paid for them. Mm. And then Terry Day is still due points on this thing and all this stuff, you know. And so they burn through the extension. Nothing ever happens. And they come back, you know, to us. And our attorney finally just says, look, guys, this ain't going to happen. He's like, they don't know what to do with it. I, I, he said, I don't feel like they're into it. I don't think this is the right place for us to be anymore. He's like, you know, um, 
I think it would be best if we asked to be released from our deal, you know, and see right. if we can shop this to somebody else. And so we agreed, you know, I mean, it's kind of hard, you know, because you have a record deal and now you're not going to have a record deal, you right. know, and so, and you've got a killer album sitting there <laughs> that the record label you're wanting to leave owns, you know? And so anyway, we got released from the record deal and Instantly, there were labels that were interested in the album, but they were smaller labels. It was like Metal Blade and Roadrunner and, you know, labels like that. So they're like talking to Mercury and going, you know, you know, what do you want for the masters and everything? And they were just asking an astronomical much, amount for these masters, you know, and then you go and then you're going to owe points to Terry Date on top of that. And then, you know, and all these little labels are going, oh, man, there's just no way we can't afford that. You know, mm. we can't we can't do it. We love yeah, you guys. Too bad. Love the album. But we did, you know, we, it's just out of our price range, you know, because they had spent, you know, over a quarter million dollars, you know, recording this album at which back then was a lot of money, you know, so, you know, now, you know, I mean, now yeah. it's that much at all because we're <laughs> right. in the bedroom, you know, so, but, you know, so anyway, at, at this point then, so were you guys like ready to call it quits or? No, not at the time, man, because we just kept thinking that maybe somebody's going to come along and, you know, pick this thing up. I mean, we were just, you know, we were still trying, you know, and, and mm -hmm. um, our attorney was still shopping it and everything and trying to see if he could get somebody that, you know, could actually come up with it. But, you know, I mean, basically the label, I, you know, Mercury had already decided at this point that it was more advantageous to take the tax right off for them, you know, and take it as a loss sure. than try to sell it, you know, so it just got shelved. You know, that's too and, bad. It's really good. I mean, I definitely yeah. recommend people look it up. It's out there. Yeah, Image oh, I, would damage, love for to, I would love for everybody to hear it, you know. So it got shelved and nothing ever happened with it. And um, mm. it really, really, you know, beat our morale down. Maybe yeah. you can uh, look into that and uh, release it on your own. I wish we could, you know, if we, I, I don't see that's what, I, and I've actually had some people talk about that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I, I mean, I, I would need to talk to some attorneys and find out what the legality is and who would we still owe money to. And because, you know, I don't guess Terry Date ever got paid for doing the thing, you know, or or didn't get everything he was supposed to, you know, and all that stuff, you know, which I hate that because I love Terry. He was a mm -hmm. great guy, you know, super to work with. And I just hate he never got anything. You know, it just it, the whole the whole experience went from being such a great positive thing to just like a, a soul killer, you yeah. know, and Did, it, and so, you know, at this point we had already moved back to Charlotte, you know, when we were getting, when we were on the road so much, we decided there was no sense in keeping an apartment in Los Angeles that we would be in for, you know, a week or two at a time. And mm -hmm. the price real estate was in Los Angeles that we would just moved back home. And so we had already basically just stowed all of our stuff in like our parents' basements and stuff yeah. like that, you know, where we were home. We would stay there, you know, and um, right. Well, I know so, you're in indie music now. I mean, did you take a break anywhere, anytime after that, or? What happened? We came back and we tried to write some more stuff and just, you know, tried to move on with Animal Bag and, you know, try. We demoed some other songs, which there's some other songs uh, that we did in a little studio called the Basement, where we also practiced in Charlotte, that are on YouTube and stuff, mm -hmm. you know. But um, it, it nobody. I mean, everybody had just. You know, it 
it had just beat us down. Everybody's yeah, it was mar- different now. And so Rich, you know, the guitarist kind of got into electronic music at the time and went off and kind of started uh, uh, doing a bunch of like, you know, rave music and stuff and became DJ Tree Frog and all this stuff, you know. And <laughs> DJ kind of Tree Frog. Out. Yeah, yeah. And did a bunch of really cool electronic stuff if you're into that, you know. But um, right. Rich went off on this tangent and just kind of for that little while, well, just quit, you know, he just stopped playing guitar and just went up and started doing electronic music. Mm-hmm. And so we tried to bring in another guitarist, but it, it wasn't the same. I mean, sure. Animal Bank was those four guys, and it just wasn't the same without one of them. Right. Well, so I, saw, I we, saw recently you and Otis did some stuff. Yeah, yeah, we did. You know, I mean, and the band never officially called it quits. We never said we'd break up or anything like that, you know. Mm-hmm. But you know, we ended up losing a couple of members, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I Once the band just kind of stopped practicing, Otis and Boo, went off and kind of started doing some stuff with a buddy of ours, Gideon Smith. And they did this um, project called the Dixie Damned. It was kind of like a, you know, kind of Southern sludge metal, you know, type thing. And then I, I was just ready for something completely different, man. You know, I sure. was just ready. And so I got real into bluegrass, believe right. it or not. And, and um, I went and started this band called Tater. That was kind of I love that name. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was kind of a fusion of bluegrass and like outlaw country, you know, with mm. a dose of rock and roll thrown in it. And uh, you know, I mean, we were doing stuff like you know, I mean, there's bands now that are kind of doing you know what we're, but we you know, like we were doing the stuff that like Hank Williams the Third and stuff like that was doing before Hank Williams Third was doing it. You know, we were kind of. Uh, the first one's doing a lot of, you know, this kind of um, rocked up bluegrass thing with a drummer and all this yeah. stuff. And so the band actually did really well, man. It was together for 10 years and um, did a lot of, you know, shows with a lot of big, you know, big bands and did a lot of, you know, regional tour. And we did a lot, you know, in the Southeast and stuff like that. You know, mm. we'd go down into Northern Florida and back up and up into West Virginia and over into Tennessee and, you know, just kind of, you know, be the Southeast and stuff, you know. Right. And um, so, uh, you know, I did the Tater thing, you know. Um, but, you know, it, the Tater thing was still kind of, it, it, it was still kind of weekend warrior type stuff, you know. Mm. I mean, because, you know, we're all having to hold down day jobs to make, you know, pay bills and stuff like that you know so um so i did that for a while and then um tater thing kind of fell apart and i did this uh thing that was still along the lines of tater but a little bit more rock and roll we brought in some electric guitars and stuff like that did that for a couple of years and then just kind of phased out of that and would do some one-offs and stuff you know just, I, I did a lot of one-man stuff just going around playing you know bluegrass and we'd go down there to myrtle beach and play you know and um ended up with a little bluegrass trio that would go down there and play a lot here in the summer around myrtle beach Polly's island merle's inlet and all down there yeah. you know and um in fact tater used to play down there a lot but um, we ended up with a good booking agent down there that i would uh, did a lot of booking for us for like 15 years down there and uh, booking agent just happened to be really good friends with Alan Bybee, who lives down there. Uh, I think Alan lives somewhere around Surfside Beach or something. But Alan, you know, is um, IBMA Mandolin Player of the Year, beat like Sam Bush and everybody for, you know, Mandolin Player of the Year. You know, Alan's like 
big time, you know, right. I mean, like best mandolin player in the world type He's stuff. The man. And we'd go down there and play and get Alan to come play with us, you know. And so we're, we got like this world class mandolin player playing with us and stuff, you know. And it was a lot of fun, man. I really did because Sounds I think like there's it, a, yeah. there was there's a lot of shared. Um, it's funny how many people you meet when you start playing bluegrass that are old rock and rollers, you know, mm. that played metal and stuff like, you know, Jake Workman, the guy that plays guitar with Ricky Skaggs now, hot shot metal guitarist, man, guy can tear up heavy metal guitar. Billy Strings, that's huge now, you know, Billy Strings, you know, he's all into, you know, everything from Black Sabbath to you name it, Billy's into it, you know, and can play all the metal stuff, you know, and, uh, but there's a lot of old metal guys that went towards rock, towards bluegrass because it's that same, same energy, you know, and stuff. So, um, had a good time doing that. And, um, now you're doing a motorhead tribute band, right? Yeah, man, I'm doing, yeah, this is killed by death. That's my, that's my motorhead tribute. Uh, we're just doing that strictly for fun, man, because I've always been a big Motorhead fan. And um, a couple of other guys, uh, you know, uh, drummers, the biggest Motorhead fan in the world. And then, we, uh, then you know, and then the guitars. I, I just basically, I thought I had thought about it for a while. And I said, yeah, it'd be fun to do a Motorhead tribute band. Nobody's doing it. And um, I felt, and then I kind of went, well, maybe there's a reason nobody's doing it. It's not like <laughs> you're going to get, you know, a, a town, you know, block party or something, play a motorhead or something. You know, the, the gig potential is kind of limited. Well, I'll but, tell you, uh, tribute bands around Myrtle Beach are, they're popular. They're oh, yeah. every weekend at the House if of Blues. Motorhead's kind of in its own thing. If you're a Bon Jovi tribute band or a Dawkins or something like that, but motorhead is still kind of a hard sell because people basically, you know, Ace of Spades and Iron Fist, and that's it. You know, yeah, even you get on a, you get on a gig with one of these other tribute bands. That, that's, what we're gonna, that's what we're going to try to do. But we yeah. just basically it was um, an excuse to get out and just play a whole show, just pretending you're Motorhead, and then to buy a whole bunch of really cool gear. You know, I mean, you know, it's like, <laughs> well, gonna need a Marshall stack, you know, and stuff like yeah. that. So you know, so you do you do the dress part and everything. You oh you, yeah, man, do it all up. Look, here's my. Yeah, I see the bass back there. Yeah, this is my my Lemmy bass I just built, man. You know, like Lemmy's out the lunch bass. You know, so nice. we try to do it. We we are trying to do everything as close as you could get to a Motorhead show. Do you talk yeah. like him when you're talking to the crowd? Kinda, yeah, kinda, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You do a little bit of the, um, you know, the Motorhead. That's good. Thing, you know, and, you That's know, good. And um, <laughs> you know, so. But, you know, I mean, the, the thing is, my voice is not 25 anymore. Right. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I have to face it, you know. And, you know, that's that, you know, that's like when Otis and I just did the show and everything, you know, we, we both had, had a, a real come to Jesus moment with, you know, whew, <laughs> it's not as not, easy as it used to be. <laughs> We're not as young as we used to be. Yeah. Because, I mean, me and Otis, you know, Otis has been doing, you know, other musical stuff too. And uh, but we had neither he nor I had really played a lot of the animal bag stuff, you know, since animal bag, you know, kind of quit doing shows. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, there were a couple animal. I, I would do Hello Cosmo and, you know, stuff like that with some of the other bands I had. But, you know, just like one or two songs. Mm -hmm. So when the opportunity came up, there it was a friend of mine that uh, wanted to do something special for his birthday. He's like a big music fan. He was a big animal bag fan and he asked Otis and I if we would do it and we and we talked and we were like 
I was like, I'll do it, you know. And I was like, yeah, I'll do it, man. And then, and then, you know, but we weren't really thinking at the time that, you know, I mean, it's just Otis and I, you know. Boo passed away, you know, in 2002, you know, and then Rich passed away in 2010. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really thinking somebody's got to play those guitar parts and that's going to be you. So you're going to have to learn Rich's <laughs> guitar parts, you know, which I'm nowhere near the guitarist Rich, you know, was or anything. So I've kind of simplified them. Sure. And spent all this time learning them and everything. And then Otis died. And then Otis, you know, um, probably like three years ago or so, Otis had a stroke. Oh, no. And so Otis had to get a lot of his ability to play back and everything. Animal Bag has had such bad luck, man. There's actually a book a guy did on bands that had horrible experiences in the mm. music industry. And there's a whole section about Animal Bag in there just really? because so much mm. bad stuff happened to us. You know, it was mm. just like, you know, all the way from two of the guys dying, you know, one guy, you know, Boo died in his sleep of natural causes at 35. 35. And Rich died in 2010 at 46 of a perforated stomach ulcer. Mm. You know, I mean, just crazy stuff, you know. It's like, um, so, um, yeah. you know, we, we've had some crazy luck. And then, you know, Otis' stroke and everything. But Otis, you know, got back. But once we started working on these songs, Otis, you know, hit me up. And he's like. Man, you know, I hadn't really tried to play these songs until now. He said, and I hadn't tried to play them since the stroke. He said, and a lot of them have left me. He's like, mm. I just don't remember them. He's like, you know, I'm having to learn these songs like learning a cover. You know, he's like, sure. you know, normally, he said, normally I can get my mind back in, you know, the frame of where it needs to be. And it'll just kind of come back. He said, but it's not happening with all of them. And so both Otis and then my you know, my voice, several years ago, I did all this street performing in Gatlinburg with the Bluegrass Munch. And it started off, oh, you're going to have a little PA to drag around with you and stuff like that. So you won't have to sing so hard. And it didn't happen. And so what we were doing was street performing up and down the strip in Gatlinburg for all the tourists all summer. Well, you'd stop at these different places and play. And people would just gather around. You know, you'd end up with all these tourists and stuff around you. And so, of course, I'm trying to sing real hard. Yeah. And I ended up just really screwing my voice up, trying to, you know, do too much yeah. all summer. And um, so it's taken me a while, man. I had to do some serious vocal rest and all that stuff. And then I just went to the doctor several months ago and had him do the scope thing, go up my nose and look at my house. I just knew they was going to find like some nodes or polyps or something like that. You know, that maybe something they could slice off and I'd get it, you know, all back and everything. And the girl looks down there and she says, vocal cords are clean. She's hmm. like, she's like, what it is. She said, you've done this for so long. You know, I mean, because I've, I've been, you know, singing in one way or another in a, in a rock band since I was 14 years old, you know, and I'm, yeah. 53 now right so she's like you've been doing this for so long and she said and you've been pushing your voice for so long you know singing rock and roll and heavy rock and roll she said what happens she said you get micro tears in your vocal cords and she said and when they heal up it's scar tissue and she said so it reduces the pliability of your vocal cords and she said so basically what you got is what you got and she said, you know, yep. 
you know, she said, you know, she said it happens to a lot of vocalists. She said, she said that, you know, it was explained to me. That's why, you know, a lot of times you'll hear these vocalists that later on in their career, they sound nothing like they did. Like they sound like they're singing different or something, you know, because, you know, they're having to learn to work around what they got left because right. basically, you know, I mean, just through the years and through the years of doing this, you know, it, it does deteriorate, you know, I mean, there's yeah. some people that are freaks of nature, like Bruce Dickinson and King Diamond and stuff like that, that, you know, are in their sixties, they can still, you know, yeah. and all that stuff, but I'm not one of them. You know, yeah. if somebody said sing falsetto and put a gun to my head, they'd have to shoot me, man, because yeah, I mean, I couldn't it. sing falsetto if I had to, you know? And so, you know, we were, you know, Otis and I both were having to kind of work on the vocals and everything else. And it's like, it was a lot harder than we thought it would be. You know, it was so do you think you guys would do any more little gigs we like may, that? I mean, I mean, we, neither one of us has said, have said we wouldn't, you know, mm. because I mean, we've kind of got it worked up now, you know, so the, yeah. half That's the good. battle's done, you know, Sure. But um, there's only so much, really, that we can do as a two-piece, you know. So much of that animal bag stuff was so complex and time signature change, this, that, and it just doesn't translate to an acoustic guitar and a bass, you know. And mm -hmm. so um, we're having to be real about what songs we can do that are even going to sound right and stuff. Right. So, you know, you, you, you know you, you're kind of limited in that aspect. But um, well, you, can, you can have fun with it. Yeah, exactly. And that's one reason I decided to do the Motorhead thing, because, you know, I can always sing like Lemmy, man. You know, I mean, it, it's like, you know, even if the voice, you know, never comes back, you know, it's yeah, not a yeah. problem, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. You know, so. That's awesome. Move. Yeah. So. Well, good, man. Well, listen, I appreciate you taking the time to chat. Hey, thanks, man. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. You know, yeah. so do you ever come back to Myrtle Beach to play at a, anymore? I, I I would love to get back down there, man. And I, I just haven't had, I, I need to put, I've actually talked to um, a banjo player that I used to play with and stuff about, you know, for some reason, the bluegrass thing is just really easy to book down there at Myrtle Beach. So, mm -hmm. you know, as far as going down there and doing stuff, it always seems to me anytime I could put like a, a bluegrass trio together and learn a bunch of bluegrass and stuff. Man, yeah, I mean, you can just get gigs everywhere down there. You know, I don't know why yeah. they eat up bluegrass so much down there, but there's yeah. just a real market for it. So oh, you, who knows, man, during the summer, that's the only way I get a vacation is to <laughs> basically play for one. So, um, right. Uh, well, yeah, if you so, ever make it back down here, let me know. I'd love to check it out. Oh, I'll definitely let you know, man. It's yeah. on the 